I don't think I pronounce it right, but it's Freilich. Oh, Freilich. So not Froelich, Freilich. I don't know. If you ask a German person, they'll probably correct me, so I wouldn't trust me. Because I feel like most people probably say Froelich. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's just in my brain. I always say Froelich. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, that's what I get at the grocery store. Yeah. All right. Three, two, one. Claire Freilich, welcome to FS Jam. Hey, Anthony. Super great to have you here. You're someone who has been kicking around the Redwood and FS Jam world for a while, probably longer than people realize, I think. But before we kind of get deeper into that whole history, why don't you just tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Yeah, yeah. I never imagined I'd actually be talking to you on FS Jam. I'm usually talking to you on Slack or Discord. Yeah, my name is Claire Freilich, and I am a software developer at a startup called Mintbean. That's my day job, but on the side, I have a lot of fun with the Redwood team, and I've been helping them internationalize and localize their tutorial documentation. It's been awesome just seeing you take off with this project because it's the scope of it and the scale of it. I think people have a hard time wrapping their mind around it. Like People realize that it's complicated. There's a lot of languages. There's a lot that goes along with it, but until you really get your hands on it and start to see what the challenges are, it can be hard to wrap your mind around. And it's cool because it seems to really gel with your background and what you did before programming because you're someone who has gotten into this uh, kind of in your in your 20s like me, I think. So I'd be curious to hear what you were doing before you got into coding and then how you started to make that transition. Totally. I think I'm very similar to you in that I have a liberal arts background. So before coming to the dark side of coding, I was an interpreter and translator in Japan. These kind of have been two undercurrent passions in my life. I've always been very interested in tech, but I've also been pulled very towards language. That's a decision I had to make in university, and I couldn't quite make it. I started out as an electrical engineer and then quickly veered off into Japanese and Spanish as my field of study. What school did you go to? I went to lots of schools, but the first one I went to was Washington State. Then that got too expensive, so I transferred to Montana, University of Montana. Then the year after that, I did a year in Tokyo, and went back to graduate in Montana. It's a good mix. And I once saw a video of you playing piano with a jazz trio in Japan. How exactly did that happen? <laughs> yeah, well, like you, I also have an interest in music. And uh, I, I played saxophone and was in jazz bands for a long time when I was back in the States. But while I was in Japan, uh, you know, the home of Yamaha and all of these amazing piano uh, makers. I actually went to the Yamaha school and met this amazing older, like 60-year-old woman that became my piano mentor. And she was a jazz musician and let me play with some of her, you know, people that she knows in the world. And I've, I was very fortunate, very underskilled, but very fortunate to get to play with them. Jazz is always my favorite kind of music to play. I played almost every genre there is. And I enjoy all of them in their own ways. But playing jazz because of the improvisational nature of it, it was just like totally different from any other medium, except for like a couple of rock bands got got pretty close, but um, not many. Did you play stand-up bass? Because I see a picture, a profile picture of you with like a large bass looking thing. Yeah, I played stand-up bass. I played electric bass. I started the stand-up because when you major in music, there's like lots of kind of preconceived notions of what goes along with that, that has a lot to do with the classical tradition. 
So if I was going to major in instrumental music education, I had to play the upright. Like they literally would not let me major on the electric bass. <laughs> and if I had done jazz though, I would have been able to do the electric bass. So it's like this weird kind of culture clash thing in the, in the university, but it was good because otherwise I would have just never learned to play it at all, <laughs> you know? So it was, it was really fun. It's such a hard instrument though, versus like the electric you get a lot more control because you're like plugged in. You can just, if you want more sound, you just turn up. <laughs> you can't do that with, with the stand up. And you have no frets, I think, right? Yeah, that's true. That's that's probably the worst part. You you have to actually know what the note is supposed to be. Well, it's funny. Now you're doing podcasting, which is kind of like jazz. You're improvising. <laughs> that's right. Cool. How'd you get into coding? Like in terms of like the mint bean stuff and the hackathons and how did all that start to come together? There's definitely a 180 there going from interpreting in Japan to this. Like I said, I've always been very tech interested and tech adjacent. So like, even when I was an interpreter, I was working at City Hall in a city called Sapporo. And it's like the most backward tech situation you could be in because in, you know, Japan is a very technical place. But when you're working for the government in Japan, you're working in like the 70s. So fax machines were still like a legitimate way to communicate. We were working in Windows 7 on the computers. Even though that was the technical environment I was in, tech still came into play. I built like little tools in JavaScript to help my coworkers do this kind of menial translation that they always had to do for like addresses. There's a very specific way that you had to translate addresses. So I made this little like regex program to help them do that without me. And as far as I know, after I left, they still kept using it. So that was a success. After working at City Hall, I moved to Amazon Japan as an internal interpreter and translator. There, I wasn't working as like a, you know, a software engineer, but I was working in this big tech company and being literally like a fly on the wall in every level of the company. I was working in a support call center, but I was interpreting for the management. So I'd be on calls with like, you know, upper management, even calls with the president of Amazon Japan. And it was a very like interesting position to be in as somebody that, you know, didn't study tech formally, but got to be in on all these conversations about big tech and big business. That got me thinking like, okay, I, I enjoy translation and interpreting and there is a creative element to it. It's not just, you know, taking somebody's words and literally translating it. There's a lot of analytical and summarization skills that come into play as well. But I was seeing these people building things and I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> you know, like so far I've been taking a lot of people's ideas and just, you know, communicating to other people. I wanted to try and push myself to like actually build things. And that's how a little seed was planted. It's like, maybe I should, you know, transition out of this. Uh, I ended up leaving Japan in 2018 and wanted to take, you know, the opportunity of my youth to travel. So I was traveling in South America, just doing labor to pay my way. And I ended up getting my passport stolen along the way. So I ended up landing in Canada for a little while for other reasons. It was when I was in Canada that I found a boot camp. And it's like, this is my opportunity. Like I have no job that I'm like obligated to right now. I have a lot of time to devote to this. And it's, now is my time to finally dive into tech. So I did that and I graduated and got my first freelancing gig, building a website with a partner and it paid for the camp. So I'm curious, before we get into that, what was like your curriculum for your boot camp and the, the tech stack you studied? Yeah, it was a Ruby on Rails boot camp. So <laughs> Rob Cameron would be happy to hear that. It was a three-month boot camp. 
And, you know, you go in knowing nothing, you come out, you know, knowing MVC software structure and having built two applications that are functional. Yeah, I would have liked to have gotten that kind of a boot camp. Are you like, how was your education, by the way? Like, because you switched as well. Oh, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> are you self-taught? No, I, I did a boot camp. I did Lambda School, which is like one of the most well-known, well-funded boot camps there is. It's quite controversial, actually. But um, I got a lot out of it. I would recommend it to certain people in very specific situations. Most of people who can't afford to put money down, like at the beginning for a boot camp. And I got a lot out of really learning just like how to work with React because it was very heavy React, it was very heavy front end, which is why I find it so interesting. I always ask this question of people who went to boot camps, what did they actually study? What was the tech? And it's a wide range of things. And I definitely feel like I got the most front-end heavy bootcamp experience of almost anyone I know. Most people, they either did almost entirely Rails or they did like Python, Django, or Flask with like half that and half front-end, whereas mine was like 80% front-end and like 20% back-end. So Redwood was made for me. <laughs> Redwood was made for people who got a lot of React experience and have no idea how to work with a back-end. So... It ended up being a kind of blessing in disguise that set me up really well to contribute and thrive in, in Redwood, even though at the time I was like, this isn't a full stack curriculum because it was called a full stack. That was what it was called. The program was called full stack, you know, and I thought that was a misnomer. <laughs> well, I think I was the opposite puzzle piece to you because ours was very backend heavy and we didn't even touch React or anything. It was just vanilla JavaScript. For me, coming out of the camp, I was very interested to study React, and that was what I dove into. And like you said, Redwood is built for people that do front-end because it takes care of the back-end. Yeah, for me, it was a good playground to, to play more around with the front-end. So you were getting into something right before I interrupted you? Yeah, where were we? I think I was, I was doing a freelance project, yeah. I got my first freelance project, which helped me fund myself a little bit longer to keep self-studying. I was doing these hackathons at a little startup they were doing this weekly hackathon. The place was called Mintbean. And it was a community of people kind of like me, like have finished uh, boot camp, finished education, and haven't landed that first job yet. So just kind of building portfolio, building confidence, building skills. And I got recognized for some of my hackathon submissions there, and they ended up hiring me. And that's where I've been since, I guess it was, it was July last year, almost a year. And people want to know more, they can listen to episode three with Monarch. Yes, my dear boss has been on your show. <laughs> yeah, he was the second guest after after David, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. You started in July. And then the first thing I ever saw you do in the Redwood world was you wrote a blog post, or not blog, was a forum post the next month about setting up Postgres locally, I think is what it was. It was like Postgres for noobs. <laughs> You're a great forum stalker. Yeah, that was me getting acquainted with Redwood and trying to figure out how to set up Postgres locally. Yeah, and that's great because that's like Kim's story. She did it with Azure Postgres. Mm. Like right now, Lucia at StepZen is like getting spun up with like MySQL. So I, I find so many interesting parallels between you know, like what, what people gravitate towards and what they take as like a project to kind of be like, this is the thing I want to do. Like this is the thing I know I don't know how to do. And I know it's complicated, but it's also like important and consequential and could be like a cool thing to get my hands on. And that's also what appeals to me about databases, even though I get, even though I got the super front end heavy 
education. I've always been really fascinated by databases, even way before I got into web, I was really interested in databases. And so when you did Rails, what database were you using? We were using Postgres, but with Rails, you have that whole active record help. So it wasn't as painful to set up. Yeah. So then how does working with active record compare to working with Prisma? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, there's some, like a lot of people say this about Rails, about how comfy and cozy it is. And I have to agree, like, it's very intuitive and Prisma, like I have like a rough history with, because I started Prisma back when it was Prisma one. And I was doing, uh, I was doing one of those West boss tutorials. He does an advanced react course that used Prisma one. And I just felt this is so redundant. I feel like I'm writing the same thing twice. Like uh, you're writing your Prisma schemas and then you're writing your GraphQL schemas. And I felt like I was doing the same thing. And when you're just learning, you're getting really confused. Like, what's the difference? Am I, am I in Prisma land? Am I in GraphQL land? I don't know. Now that it's Prisma 2 and now that I know more about GraphQL, um, I'm finding Prisma like a, a joy to work with on this. I'm, I'm making a side project right now in Redwood. And first of all, it took like one line to set up my Postgres database. And second of all, Prisma makes it really easy to interact with that database. And I can't complain. The conventions are there. And how did you first hear about Redwood? Actually through Mintbean, because I believe it was Rob Cameron that came and did a, a little pitch for Redwood at uh, Mintbean. It was maybe like an Ask Me Anything or something. And this is actually how I got involved with Redwood, because I think during that talk in the chat section, I asked like, oh, do you guys have like any thoughts about translating your documentation. I was just so excited about this project and I, I wanted to get involved in some way, but I was still kind of like a, a freshman in the tech world and I didn't know if I could contribute in a meaningful way like to the platform itself. So I thought, oh, well, I, I had this translation experience. Maybe that's some way I could get involved. And yeah, that's David Price ended up reaching out to me and taking me up on that a little while later. Awesome. Yeah, let's get into translating the docs now because I remember this very vividly when you were brought on because I was very excited to hear that someone wanted to come in and do it because funny enough, I have a long history and interest in translation, not in the the practical sense of, of what you were doing, but more in like the theory of how you think about translation because what you were saying about how it's slightly creative and it's it's not, it's not straightforward the way most people think. It's not, you're not just replacing words from one language with words from another. You're, there's, there's a lot that's kind of wrapped up in that. And I once went into like this huge rabbit hole, this whole history of like translation, like going all the way back to like, you know, the confusion of tongues kind of story, which most people think of the Tower of Babel, but actually it was back to Mesopotamia, like 1500 years before that. And then you have a lot of like Greek thought around it. Like what does a word actually mean? Does it represent something real or not? And then you had this trend in like the 1600s where it was philosophers who wanted to create a universal language to just represent all ideas. And then that kind of eventually morphed into like Esperanto and, and that kind of stuff. And so I remember just like researching this and just finding it to be so fascinating. So it was such a deep, dense, long-lived like historical problem and so I thought it was cool that you wanted to to do it and then once we got into it like we'll link to this in the show notes but this is literally the longest form post that's ever been on Redwood by 
quite a large monster. It's probably at least twice as long as the next longest one. <laughs> so how did you approach it when you started? Yes. Speaking of language being a problem, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of language thrown around, yeah. Well, there was a, there was a learning process. Um, and I do remember you were the first person that reached out and was really excited about this. And that that kind of gave me a little energy to see like, oh, there's somebody else in the community that's also interested in seeing this come to fruition. So to be honest, it was I was given like totally free reign because it was like a side, a little side endeavor for the Redwood tutorial. Um, and in hindsight, you know, I wish there had been more planning. <laughs> I think I went in a little bit too early to dive into like the the infrastructure and the localization aspect of it when probably before that step and anybody that's thinking of localizing their website right now, you should think from the outset, like what are your goals for localizing? And uh, like, who is your audience? Like what languages are you going to target? What kinds of needs does your website have? Um, you know, cause there's different types of websites. In the case of the tutorial, we have, you know, lots of markdown documents, long text, um, that needs to preserve its format. But maybe, for example, another website that I've translated recently was my own children's book website, which does not have lots of markdown text. It has very little text because it's aimed for like children. And the localization approach for that website is radically different than this. So first of all, just know, know, know the beast and know, know the goal uh, would be my advice to my past self. Um, so we ended up knowing what language to go for after a long discussion in that forum, I'm sure you've seen, we were doing all this like statistical analysis of like what the most popular language might be, or like what our users might be, uh, familiar with. We ended up just going with a community member that spoke French and was willing to translate the 18,000 word, word tutorial. So we did kind of an availability uh, basis for the first translation, which was French. And you know what? That's not a bad first language to go for because a lot of the world speaks French. And, you know, you know it's a chicken or egg question because I just checked on Netlify like what the the like highest viewers of our tutorial website are. And you have like the US, the UK, and then France is the third one. And I was like, oh, I wonder if that's because of the uh, French translation or if it's just, you know, happens to be that a lot of developers are in France, I don't know. Uh, so long story short, like planning is important. I thought it was good to just pick a language to go with it. That's, that's a good approach. The, the thing you though gotta keep in mind is if you wanna plan for all the languages there's like a much wider character set you have to deal with versus like french it's very similar to english in the sense of it's you know pretty much the same the same alphabet and is it actually i don't know that for sure <laughs> uh there's some extras and actually with french in terms of character sets there's like these funny like sometimes you have to put spaces before punctuation and that actually comes into play with html uh sometimes you have to use that and NBSP apostrophe note. So far, we haven't run into that problem. It's a much bigger stretch to go to Russian or Japanese or any of those kind of like, like those are entirely different character sets. 
that's definitely something you have to keep in mind, like, especially if you're going to do a language that reads like right to left, like Arabic, that's going to change how your, your UI thought process works. So, so far, we only have these Latin alphabet languages that will definitely need to be thought of. But in terms of how we arrived at the, the current setup, is that what you're aiming after? Yeah, so let's get into like the, the kind of tech decisions that went into it, because one kind of funny thing that you did is, I think what the project really needed is it just needed a long research phase, essentially. Yeah. I thought you did a really good job of this, because you basically sussed out, can we do this with the current website? Can I kind of build my own solution to do this? And then what solution actually exists that's going to fill this fill this need? And so how did you first figure out that our current setup wasn't going to quite work, that it was going to be more difficult than it was worth? Coming into this, there were kind of three requirements I had on my mind. One of them was, this is a living document. These tutorials are being updated constantly. How do we prevent staleness between languages? The other requirement was, we're going to need to crowdsource translations. We aren't going to like you know, pay people. This is an open source project. So how can we make it super easy for anybody in the community just to jump into the project and know how to get started and kind of build a a mechanism that's kind of self-sustaining? And the third one was, how can we reduce noise on the redwoodjs.com repo? Because, you know, there's already a lot of PRs flying into it for like the actual docs for Redwood. And it's also the hub for news. It's the hub for, you know, getting those free stickers. It's, It's everything. Adding translation pull requests into that mix was going to create a lot of noise, I felt. And I was wondering, is there a way we can kind of abstract that and remove it from the .com repo? So those were my three goals. And the current Redwood.js website is built with this beautiful framework called Cameron.js, which is a static site. Although Robin says it's not a framework. He, he will say, actually, now he's, he's, he's rolled back at the framework part. What does he call it? He's like, it's just like HTML and stuff. <laughs> Sure. Well, anyway, it is a system for building static websites and it's it's set up really beautifully right now and I, I felt like I didn't want <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt it. So I actually have like a folder open. Like you said, I went through all these iterations and I'm counting like there's 17 repos I built in here, like trying out different solutions. Like you said, I gave up on doing it on redwood.com pretty quickly just because the well, I'll say this, there's kind of two aspects to translating a website. You have your internationalization or I-18N and you have localization or L-10N. Much easier to say localization out loud. But the internationalization is kind of the plumbing or the architecture side of making websites multilingual. The localization is the, the actual content. So, you know, translating the actual words that you're going to read. So you can think of it kind of like, you know, plumbing and sewage which is not really beautiful, maybe like honeycombs and honey, I guess. In terms of the the plumbing, it was going to be difficult on the .com website to add multilingual pages because it's, it's set up to build beautifully and like auto create the sidebars and everything based on this kind of single source of English truth at this time. To try and manipulate that to build for different languages was going to take a lot of a lot of change, you know, which could have been done, but I thought maybe there's a better way to do this and also achieve those other goals, which were like reducing noise on the repo and building this kind of self-sustaining translator ecosystem. So I started looking into, okay, well, maybe we can have a separate repo for like the localized content, like the translated content. And during the build process on .com, maybe go fetch those and kind of pull them into the website. 
this way, like all of the conversation and the activity revolving around translation would be in a totally different repo and not pollute the .com space. So I was playing around with GitHub Actions and like thinking, how can we prevent this remote repo from getting stale to the English docs? Turns out it's not super easy to make pull requests across repos. <laughs> so I couldn't quite get that to work. Uh, so then I started looking into, okay, well, what if we isolate some content of the website and just just to start sandboxing how we would build a, a localization ecosystem and make it on a separate website of its own. Because I think you remember in that long forum, we had several case studies um, of different, you know, tech frameworks that have gone about localization in different ways. Yeah, I, I'm one who did all those case studies, so yes, I remember. <laughs> yeah, you supplied a lot of those. And, uh, you know, one of them was React. Uh, there was like the storybook case study where they have a, a subdomain for like just their tutorial content. And we're like, oh, hmm, maybe we could do something like that. Uh, and that's what we ended up doing. Um, and we decided to isolate the tutorial uh, because it is, it, at the time, there was one tutorial and it was just like a, an ice, a, a standalone document that could be a good test for localization. So then it came to the question of, okay, are we going to... How are we going to build the site? And at first, I was like, okay, I'll try to learn Cameron JS and see if we can make this work because I'm a big fan of the philosophy that Rob has. It's like, this is just a static website. There's nothing that complicated about it. We just need a little HTML and call it a day. And I tried, I tried that out, but again, I had to hand code the build process, right? Of I wanted to do like a file-based uh, routing and which is all fine and good when you're doing one language, but when you're thinking of like how to make it scalable to multiple languages, it becomes a bit more thought intensive. And I was like, well, maybe I don't need to reinvent the wheel of not only creating a docs framework, but also making it a localizable docs framework. At this point in the story, for me, I was, I was watching you go through this process and I had heard of ViewPress, you know, way back and knew it was like a thing, but... I actually kind of dove into it because I, I realized that it fit this really interesting niche in that it was made by Evan Yu, who is creator of Vue, and he made it for himself as a tool to write the Vue docs. And one of the requirements of the Vue docs is that they had to be in Chinese as well as English. And so it was designed to be a multilingual docs site. And so I was looking at that, I was like, wow, this looks like this essentially kind of kind of solves our problem. And, and we didn't end up going with it. We ended up going with another doc kind of generating site. But once I kind of dove into it, I realized that there's people who put a lot of thought and a lot of work in, into this. And there's a lot of prior art to draw on. Definitely. Yeah. And actually through this whole process, I've learned the importance of not reinventing the wheel. <laughs> like it, it was very educational. But at the end of the day, like there's, like you said, these people have poured a lot of time and thought into making a system that works. And yes, we did end up using a framework. We'll get into that in a second. But like you say, like why reinvent the wheel? One of the things I tried was DocuSource 1. And I was playing around with it and they're, 
they had like, an explicit warning on their docs that said like warning like uh we recommend that you use docusaurus 2 which is like the, the new hot thing in town and i go over the docusaurus 2 documentation and it looks like they don't have um internationalization support yet and so i abandoned that and i was like okay back to building my own static site generators <laughs> and i tried that and i ended up building my own static site generator didn't work out i tried um another one called 11t i don't know if you've heard of that static site generator but also tried that which is cool yeah, yeah we've actually talked about it on um the jamstack book episode that's one of the featured feature in there and uh yeah ben is a really big ben myers is really a big fan of of 11 teach because it has uh, like kind of more accessibility focus yeah it's super simple like i'm very grateful for this journey because i picked up on all these really cool frameworks and things i'd like to use for other projects yeah i mean i love stack site generators i think they're super cool yeah yeah and like you were mentioning ViewPress and things like I felt I still felt like this is such a simple use case. Like, I don't think we need Vue. We don't need React. We just need to like get markdown documents onto the Internet. You know, I came to eat my words though later. But uh, yeah, so at the at the end of the day, I was getting exhausted from all these attempts that just weren't quite meeting our needs. And finally, I happened across a PR on the Docusaurus 2 repo. And there was some somebody was leading an effort to add internationalization to docusaurus 2 and i was like oh, okay let's jump on this this looks like it's almost ready and could you kind of like drill into what that actually means adding that for this framework specifically adding internationalization yeah mm-hmm. right so internationalization is the the plumbing right so it's what would make docusaurus 2 um it would give docusaurus 2 the ability to serve this type of content in multiple languages, you know, with the drop-down menus, with the sidebars, with the SEO, everything, all of that infrastructure-related things would be taken care of. And on top of that, they were also suggesting a, um, a tool for the localization, which is that content, uh, translating the content. And that tool was called Crowdin, and it was the first time I had heard of Crowdin. And because up until that point, I was thinking of using a, lo- a localization manager called Git Localize because it was free. It was GitHub based. It w- you just uh, hook it up to your GitHub and it would listen to changes in your repo and you know tell you, oh, your your French is only seventy percent translated for this document. And I thought, perfect. Like this is how we can get translators in the community aware of our gaps immediately, so they could just jump in on the project. It turns out, Git Localize is you know it's a great budding technology, but it has a lot of bugs. And I found that in my trials. So I jump over to Crowded and I see that it's a similar tool. It's free for open source projects because they get all of the translation strings that help with their machine learning. The UI was a bit more complicated than Git Localized. So at first I was skeptical. It's like, is this going to be easy for translators in the community to jump on board? But in my research, it was the best thing out there so far. And that's actually what we're using now is Crowdin. Anybody with a GitHub account can log in and use it. So it's, it's like easy to get started with for developers. And this was the recommended technology to pair with Docusaurus 2. And I was like, okay, well, I think we finally found, we've found a potential uh, candidate for success here. And the only problem was this feature was not released yet. So it was a lot of talking to Sebastian Lorbet who led the the Docusaurus internationalization effort and reading through the source code, at the same time, because uh, DocuSource is a Facebook product, I guess, Jest is also a Facebook product, and they were 
converting their own docs into DocuSource too. So I was peeking behind the curtain there and seeing exactly how they were using all of these features that are not documented. And basically we built the entire Redwood tutorial without documentation from DocuSource because it was still under development, you know, based on this like source code findings and talking to developers in that community. And that was a huge learning experience for me, like just seeing, you know, what goes into adding such a, a major feature like that to a major project. Um, it was fun being a fly on the wall to that, but also just learning how to to get into the the guts, get into the source code and see exactly how interla- internationalization works in a framework like this. How did you first get connected with Sebastian? I found him in a PR. <laughs> so I think I made... Yeah. I was like, oh, have you heard of Git Localize? Like being the naive person I was, um, I hadn't heard of Crowdin yet. He's like, oh, I'll look into it. But I think he'd already found a, a good localization manager. So it, it was just little comments in the PRs and things like that that connected us, I guess. It's very cool. Yeah. I'd like to get Sebastian on the show for sure. Talk about his whole side of this journey. Oh, man. He has a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I can only imagine Uh, Yeah, why don't you go a little more into detail of like what you saw the Jest team going through, like what kind of their biggest concerns were and like what were they focused on in terms of like what they needed out of DocuSource? Well, I think they, like I don't, I didn't really look at their conversation so much as their code. So I don't know what they were thinking, but it seems like they had a very clear goal because they already had an existing website that they were just, you know, migrating from DocuSource 1 to DocuSource 2. Okay, cool. So... I think they knew what they were getting themselves into, <laughs> which is something I can't exactly say for myself with Redwood. So that's their, their migration. It was a migration. It wasn't as much a construction. Gotcha. There's probably very low communication overhead as well, both being inside of <laughs> the same organization. Maybe. I don't know how it's set up over there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. You'd have to have question for, for Sebastian. So it's interesting. I, I always do a lot of tech podcasts, so I hear a lot of people tell stories of you know cultures at at different companies and i find that no matter what because these companies are so large there's just going to be so many people and so many teams that it's really hard to have any sort of homogenous experience across an organization but you can have aligned philosophies of like what the organization is about yeah it seems like the the processes and the tools end up being very flexible but everyone who kind of like into it there's like a they have a kind of like this big picture of like where it's going. And so I find that very interesting. It's, it's similar to, I think, an open source project where we're all coming at from different places, different backgrounds and different experiences and working on different computers, on different operating systems, deploying to different clouds. And it's just, it's so much different stuff, <laughs> but we're all trying to do it together and we're all trying to aim at the same goal. And it's, it's a really cool thing to see. Yeah. If you have Sebastian on, I'd, I'd love to hear you approach him about this question because, you know, coming to Redwood was my first hands-on experience with open source projects and seeing how that works under the hood. I have this big question for projects like Docusaurus and Jest um, because they are open source. Like you can look online, React, you know, but they also have the, the name Facebook associated with it. And I'm just not really sure how the relation of those projects is to Facebook and how they organize. So get them on. <laughs> I recommend listening to some, there, I recommend you a lot of podcasts where they kind of talked about what was cool about React is it really was kind of a bottom up thing in the sense that Jordan Walk just created it and he kind of had to sell it around Facebook. It wasn't just like, oh, this guy created this thing and we're going to make everyone at Facebook start using it. 
So there is a, a certain culture of you have to actually build something that the engineers of the company want if they're if they're going to adopt it. And the open source projects they're building, they are being dog fooded. That's that's the whole point. And so it's a multi multi pronged thing they get out of it. They get prestige, they get developers interested in their tech, they get better feedback from users, and then they get it all mashed back up into the soup that is Facebook.com. So it's not like an open source project like Redwood because you can't really contribute to it, honestly. <laughs> like this is the thing people complain about with, with React is that you can propose a contribution and they'll just be like, no, <laughs> and because it doesn't align with their vision because they have a very specific vision, a very specific idea of what type of application it needs to serve, which is Facebook. And there could be a lot of good downstream effects of that, but it's not something that just kind of anyone can step in and say, I want to do this thing. So there's a really weird tension there. Cause like you say, it is open source. You can just look at the source code, but it's not the same kind of free form collaborative type thing that it is for, for other projects. It's kind of like a hybrid. I mean, there's the benefit too, that like they get feedback from the actual users like in repo. So like people that are requesting changes or like find bugs, like they know about it probably faster than they would if it was closed. They don't have as many eyes on it. Indeed. Great. So, um, hold on, I had a thing. Oh yeah. I'd be curious what your thoughts are on automated translation, if it's useful at all, if it's kind of like not going to work for the type of content we're trying to do. Um, I know this came up a little bit in the discussion, but not a ton. It was something that we were like, this is like way more complicated than we need to think about. But <laughs> I would be curious to get your kind of take on it. And if you think it's something that's like worth pursuing. So by automated translation, you mean like machine translation? Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think machine translation has a place like, and coming from the field of translation, like, you know, like 10 years ago, I thought there's no way that machine translation is ever going to catch up to what a human can, you know, wrap their head around and like the poetry and all of these types of things. Um, and then slowly over my career as a translator, I've, I was watching Google Translate become more and more powerful. And actually there was one sad day at work where I was like really stuck on a, the wording of a translation. And I just like thought I'd pop it into Google Translate for like inspiration on what kind of words might pop out. And it popped out with a great translation that was better than something I thought of. And I was like, uh-oh, I need to get out of this field. Like, <laughs> um, so I'll say like machine translation in the last 10 years has blown my mind. And I, I think it has use cases for sure. Like, you know, if you go into YouTube now and uh, they have auto translated subtitles, um, they aren't perfect, but it allows me to watch content, you know, and understand it to a certain degree from many, many more places in the world. So I think that's an example of a, like a quick and dirty good use case for machine translation. But quick and dirty being the, the key word there, because when we're talking about Redwood JS tutorial, I don't know if any of your listeners have followed through that tutorial, but if you do, you'll see it's, it's very much written in the voice of Rob Cameron, who has a particular artful skill of like weaving comedy into tutorial to make it engaging and fun and relatable, but like in not in a way that's like, that dominates the tutorial, right? Like you don't like get distracted by all of these jokes. It just really kind of helps push you along and it's a very personable read. And this is the type of 
text that doesn't work well with machine translation. You know, like there's lots of idioms you have to account for. You need a human in the process for this type of translation. And that's why we ended up after talking about like, oh, maybe we can just, you know, pop a Google Translate plugin and they'll get the gist of it. But with this open source project, like the sense of community is so important. And I feel like anybody that's dived into the Redwood tutorial, that's kind of been their like their entry, their welcome mat into the Redwood world. And personally, I feel like that really had to, to maintain its, uh, its personality. And the only way we could do that is with having other human translators translate it. And not only just human translators, but human translators that their mother tongue is the target language or at least they're like near native because we've had amazing people coming to volunteers like, oh, like I'm studying Spanish right now and I'd really like to help out. And I'm like so grateful for their enthusiasm, but I really feel it's important to get people that know the language. This has been my motto as a translator, like you have to know the language well to be able to translate into the language uh, doing the translations. So for now, human translators using uh, Crowdin as our localization manager. Yeah. Well, what you said about how you put in something you needed to translate and got back a good answer. That's kind of what, what I'm getting at here. What, what I think is really cool is that it's not about automating the translation and just like not having translators. It's about the synthesis of, of the two and having that just some sort of tool. I can just jostle your mind to like get you thinking in a, in a new kind of way. And I agree with you that Google Translate especially is just totally blowing my mind. What, what I found it useful for, you're talking about the, the YouTube video captioning. I found a, a similar thing with like news articles in other languages. Like if I wanted to read like a news article from like a German newspaper or like Chinese news, something like that, I could plug it into Google Translate and I get a sense of what it's about, like the actual information, informational content of, of the article. And so that's, that's what I found very interesting, but at the same time, it didn't read like it was translated by a person. There would eventually be weird kind of incongruencies that would like, you like, okay, I kind of get what you meant, but that's not really what you meant to say. <laughs> and that's where the, the nuance of being a native speaker is, is so important. Definitely. And I, I like what you said there about it being a good tool at, at the present for kind of being like a rubber ducking tool, like helping you maybe think of some words you hadn't thought of if you're, if you are doing translation. Um, and I will say like the tool we're using Crowdin, they also use machine translation as kind of a translation aid. So you'll have, it's a string by string translation tool. You click on a string in the source language, it's going to provide you with like 10, suggested translations based on their machine learning data of what other translators have translated similar strings. So it's useful to help you get started. And I'm watching this process and like, oh, they're quite clever because now since they're letting people use this tool for free, if they agree to submit their strings, they're building this huge, you know, this uh, base data to plug into their machine learning models. And who knows, maybe even in a short amount of time, we're going to be even more astounded at what machine translation can do. But it does depend on the language, like especially coming from Japanese, where you it's a very contextual language. You you never use pronouns unless like you really want to emphasize it. Like you never know. You could sit on the train and people will be talking about something unless you started at the beginning of their conversation. You aren't gonna really know what they're talking about. 
that doesn't work well with machine translation and you get a lot of funny uh, translations with uh, Japanese to English, for example. And actually, I did a class at Amazon for um, call takers that were trying to write emails in English and they weren't native English speakers. And I taught them like tricks on how to get machine translation to work for them by adding some more context in their source strings. But yeah, uh, I'm impressed. Very interesting. Have you ever heard of word vectors? What's that? Yeah, it's a, it's a machine learning technique and specifically in natural language processing, which is specifically machine learning done on text data. And so a vector is like, you know, X, Y, it's like just number coordinate kind of thing. And what it does, is it takes words and places them on these like basically coordinate positions that can like relate them to each other. So you could have like a cluster of like dog, cat, horse, and then like another cluster of like car, boat, plane, you know? And then you could have like say king and queen and you could then have like son and daughter or like man and woman. And you could do like king minus man equals queen. Like this, this kind of like ways of numerically representing concepts and how they relate to each other like a spatial way. <laughs> it just totally, totally blows my mind because it gets at that kind of deeper level of like what's actually the, the meaning of the words. But I, I just always wonder like how far we can actually get with this kind of stuff because <laughs> it, eventually it's just like, it's just pulling it all down to numbers. So like you say, there's so much more to it. Yeah. And then there's metaphor and other layers of language as well. Like I'm reading this book right now called The Stuff of Thought by Steven Pinker, which you might be interested in. I've read a couple of Steven Pinker's books. Yeah. Ah, okay. I figured it'd be up your alley. But yeah, he touches on these types of things. Like there's different schools of thought in the realm of interpreting how language is a, a looking glass into human nature. Yeah. Steven Pinker actually wrote the book that has had the most influence on just like writing for me, like a mechanical sense. It's, um, what was it called? Oh, there, yeah, it's called the sense of style. And it's basically just like, how do you write in a way that's like clear and concise and actually gets across the thing you want to say. And it was like super tactical in like the advice it gave. And it just really stuck with me. Cause it also, he, cause he was actually, he actually studied linguistics. So he understood like how grammar works and syntax trees and, and all that kind of stuff. And then because he also studied neuroscience, he had that kind of like brain aspect to it as well. So yeah, he's a cool dude. Good stuff to read. Yeah. Thanks for the recommendation. Uh, so let's just go ahead and let our listeners know like where we're at right now, where we're trying to go. If we have any languages in the works that are being translated, or if we have any like needs or areas we're looking for, if it's just kind of like anyone wants to contribute, come, come join us. Yes. Uh, I will say, so since releasing learn.redwoodjs.com, the subdomain, uh, a new tutorial has come out, tutorial part two, and that's an additional several thousand words of text. And so since we only have part one translated into French right now, if there are any French speakers listening that would like to get involved with an open source project and give feedback on our translation mechanism, hop on over and get started. Our, our documents are a click away to getting translated. Um, and as to other languages and things, like, again, right now, since I think there's discussions that need to be had about goals and stuff for the localization, but 
at this moment, it's kind of an availability basis. So if like you are interested in translating it into Indonesian or Spanish or something, like it's it's very easy to get started. You can head over to um, learn.redwoodjs.com and click on the GitHub link and open an issue and we can get you started real quick on a new language. Uh, but that being said, like moving forward, I think now that we finally have a, a mechanism for, you know, inviting new translators, I think now we need, I need to start thinking about community building. And because we've had like these, we've had four different people involved with translation so far, but you know, you come in and then you go off and do other projects. Like I'm looking at how other uh, projects like TypeScript and Gatsby are approaching localization of their documents and they have like a, a community in their their Discord channels for like a channel for each localization language so that people can meet other localizers that are interested in the same, you know, content and, and ask each other questions, maybe come up with like glossary, but more importantly, like build that sense of community that makes people want to come back and contribute translations again. And on the same note, I'd like I, I feel there's a great need to better recognize and the people that have contributed, like, because I would consider them contributors to Redwood. Uh, right now, it's not quite in place. So I'd like to beef that up maybe with some sort of like incentivizing badge system or at the very least getting them onto like the contributors list. I would say that's definitely a no brainer. That would be the least. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Claire. Really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, where can our listeners reach you? You can find me on Twitter now. I have a Twitter. Uh, it's Claire Fro, C-L-A-I-R-E-F-R-O-E. Um, or you can find me on GitHub, just Claire Fro without the E, C-L-A-I-R-E-F-R-O. And yeah, that's those are the best ways to reach me. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks, Anthony. like an old man licking an ice cream cone, Fraley. <laughs>